You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pod seat and tray table are in their full, upright, and locked position. The airlock has been sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the functional nerdverse. So this is an unusual setting in a lot of senses. So for one thing, so far you're just hearing one nerd, and that's because there is only one nerd on the call. The call is coming from inside the nerd house, the nerd house in question being mine, because for purposes of this episode, I am both Tracy and Patrick. I'm the horrifying fused organism, Tracy Patrick, or Patracy or what have you, uh, because Patrick has been double booked and isn't able to join us on this episode, which means I get TR Napper all to myself. Bwahaha. <laughs> I hope that doesn't sound as distressing as it probably does sound, TR Napper. <laughs> Welcome aboard. Thank you, but there's two nerds in the re- on the recording. I, you know what? Yeah, that was really, that was quite insensitive of me. I shouldn't, I shouldn't take your identity away from you. So yeah, yeah. I'm a giant nerd, man. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's more or less kind of the qualifications for, for being invited aboard. No, it's great to be here. Thank you, Tracy. Oh, yeah. I, I You know, one of my favorite things about booking different people on the podcast is that it happens so many different ways. I mean, obviously, publicists reach out to us with, with requests and things, and, and sometimes we're really excited to honor them. Sometimes we have friends in the industry um, or, or other creatives who we reach out to who we're just like, we haven't heard from you in a while. Come on over. Hang out with us. And other times, it's just the sort of delightful happenstance of the way the universe works. And that's kind of what brings you here, at least for us, Tim. So we've got I happen to be friends with Austin Habershaw. Um, and Austin oh, Habershaw, that's the connection. Okay. Yeah, Austin Habershaw knows you. Actually, Austin Habershaw and I are agency siblings or cousins, uh. I guess, because he's represented by Jabberwocky Literary and so am I. And we had a chance at Worldcon Chicago to hang out and we happened to be shoulder buddies at the big dinner. And so we spent the entire night chatting each other up and it was great. And so talking about things and eating absolutely ridiculous Chicago pizza. And so anyway, at the end of it, you did the thing that you do where you end up just following each other on all of the socials and whatnot. And back in uh, end of November in, in 2023, just a couple months ago, he was boosting with great excitement your Aliens tie-in novel, Bishop, which came out mm. in December. And as it so happened, at that time, my son, who was 16, was beginning his Aliens phase, which he is still deeply into. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, so like literally right when that that kind of crossed my my socials, he had just seen Aliens like the week before and was was just absolutely raring to go to keep watching Alien franchise stuff. And I was like, well, this is it. This is a sign. This is this is what the universe wants of me. The nerd gods are calling. And so now here we are. Well, so- well, thank you. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> uh, the the Aliens thing was um, the Bishop opportunity was uh mm-hmm. A bit like me getting on this show was just completely random. I hadn't pitched anything. Mm-hmm. I had never expected to do a uh, a tie novel. I don't. If I, uh, the book's out now, so I can confess this. I didn't actually read <laughs> that many tie novels ever. Mm-hmm. But coincidentally, and maybe this was the universe uh, giving giving me a sign. Deep. One of the very, very few tie novels I ever read was Aliens tie-in, the Alan Dean Foster oh. novelization. Then you're, you were all prepped for it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was not. The amount of prep <laughs> is phenomenal. 
Oh my god, there was a, like a Bible, like a yes. "Thou shalt not" and such. Yes, all of that. There was a there was a uh, kind of an encyclopedia, a timeline. Mm-hmm. There was not quite "Thou shalt not," but there was "Thou shalt." Oh, okay, all right. And I'm kind of because it's a, of course it's a big studio IP. Oh yeah. And so they, um, I, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say, but I will say that if you think of the, the movie Aliens and Alien, mm-hmm. certain things are clear that, that are thematically consistent, and that is giant corporations are evil, for example. Which, and, you know, as a cyberpunk writer, you can, you can lean into that. Oh, well, I am completely yeah. on board. <laughs> it, there's a... Uh, you know, it has strong female characters, fantastic. Mm-hmm. High octane action, sure. Gothic horror, fantastic. Oh, but one of the co- and one of the cool things, and this is a perennial for science fiction, is of course um, through the synthetics, exploring what it means to be human uh, and what yeah. is yeah. sentience and what is free will and and what rights do they have and should they have any? So it, it, it and you know, we had two different very. If you think of just the first two aliens mm-hmm. film, we had Ash. Who was mm-hmm. a psychopath, and then Bishop, who was who's just lovely. Yeah, he's just really quite quite civilized. In the yeah, end, I, yeah, yeah. So anyway, but I just I was submitting. It's actually, and it's and, and it's. I have a novella coming out later this year, which is about that has does involve artificial intelligence, and the novella is called uh, "Ghost of the Neon God." And my agent was mm-hmm. submitting uh, was. Submitting that to different publishers, and the pub, mm-hmm. one, the Titan in the US said, Titan Books US said, the the uh, acquiring editor said, ah, we're not after novellas, but ah, oh, Tia Napa, he likes he likes artificial intelligence, huh? Does he mm. like the aliens universe? Because we need someone to write a Bishop novel. To which I said, um, no, I don't want to write a Titan novel. And then all my writer <laughs> friends, uh, all my writer friends grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and said, are you insane? Write the mm-hmm. goddamn book, man. And I said, oh, okay, okay. So they can, my friends talked me around and I wrote it in a fever dream, Tracy, because <laughs> I, five, are you, are you a writer, Tracy? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've got a, I've got a couple books out. Yeah. Are you got a couple of books out? Okay, I, I should have done my, my um, internet stalking of the hosts. I just, no, it's- I just read your, uh, I just watched, uh, listened to your show, I should say. Um, mm, yeah, yeah. So you know, how long does it take you to write a book? Oh God! So I happened to have a a, a couple books in a deal um, when when I was doing my books, and so the first one, as happens with the book that no one you, no one knows you exist, no one wants it. You know, it's there's no contract anywhere. You don't have an agent. You don't have anything. I spent about like I don't know two years working on it on the whole, and then the second one I had to sort of whip round in a, in a little less than a year and get business uh. done on that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that seems I don't know what you think, but that seems like you're in the in the the fat part of the curve for writers mm-hmm. productivity in terms of turning out a book. Two one to two years, I feel like science fiction, uh, speculative fiction writers t- tend to manage that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Genre what do folks you think? have got a kind of I don't I mean, I think there, there are absolutely folks in genre, like uh, particularly, I'm thinking like Sean and Maguire's or whatnot, um, who mm. just like if, if if four months go by and and she hasn't turned out a new book, everyone's like, is, is Sean and dead? 
Like what, <laughs> you know, and so there's that, there's that kind of pace. And then, you know, there's quite the other, you know, Brandon Sanderson like rolls out of bed and like a, a, a manuscript falls out of his lap and it's sort of terrifying. But he's just annoying. Right. Yeah. Doorstoppers as well. So like, not even, they're not, forget the novellas, man. He's just going to go straight for like 900 pages that he wrote by accident. Oh God. But yeah, yeah. Like I, I, I remember when I had my first chat with my agent about sort of like long-term things, she was talking about, well, you know, really like six to 18 months. Like you kind of have to land the ability to do a manuscript somewhere in that range uh, oh, to kind God. of stay relevant. Yeah. That was what she was talking about. Yeah. Well, I'm slow normally, so I uh, I probably my median is three years. Yeah, yeah. And my debut probably took three to five. Thirty six streets mm-hmm. took three to five. So they come yeah. up. One of the reasons I said no was they came along and said, "Do you want to write a bishop novel?" Which is kind of awesome because it's canon, but it's also, "Can you write a bishop novel in five months?" Oh well, or I mean- four and a half months. So when I say it was a fever dream. I don't know how I did it, and I don't think I could ever do it again. And because I wasn't, I think I, I think it's fair to say that sometimes tie-ins get the reputation of being phoned in. Um, you know, mm. the authors. I'm not denigrating any particular IP. It's just that I know some authors who will get the opportunity. It's they'll get take the check. Um, they'll do a good job. But it's not yeah. their own. It's not their own work. It's not a passion project, and I understand that. I, yeah. I, I understand that one hundred percent. But for me, I'm I'm sort of a, I'm something of a perfectionist, and I did not want to have my name on something that I wasn't truly proud of. Brian, and so I just absolutely destroyed myself over those five months. <laughs> oh writing that bloody book um but in the end i was proud of it again i don't know how i did it i don't think i could do it again it's like a yeah so ninety thousand or hundred thousand page manuscript hundred thousand page word hundred thousand pages oh god that, that oh god really oh no 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 um uh but no i was really happy with with how it came out and they did some fabulous art for the cover and the the fans have been pretty the the fans are brutal in oh oh no like the you, aliens. you haven't gone to the Goodreads, have you? Surely not. Dude, okay, well, here's two things. Firstly, Aliens fandom is can be brutal. Mm. Uh, secondly, I have a Goodreads addiction. I need to go to some sort <laughs> okay. of... all right, yeah. Uh, 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 Multiple step program. Yeah, uh, I do. I need a multi-step program where I say I'm TR Napper and I'm a Goodreads addict and apparently a masochist because I read every single review. Oh, my. I have some. I have a friend who says he just filters out only the five star reviews. Interesting. Um, that's no, that's okay. probably the best way. Are you? Do you? Do, do you? Um, I. Um, you I looked. I, I looked at the reviews quite a lot for my first book, and that taught me a valuable lesson. <laughs> so, I mean, which is not to say it got bad reviews. Like, I, I, I did, I did pretty well for myself for for a first book out and not having the least idea of what I was doing. But by the time the second book came out, I was just sort of like, yeah, no, I got to keep my head down and just sort of keep working on things. But yeah, no, it, it, I think my equivalent for it, because my day job, of course, is that I'm a teacher. So we have, we have student surveys and, you know, the students have the chance to sort of roll up their sleeves and go like, well, now's mm. the reckoning, you know, at the end mm. of the semester and say what they have to say. And so 
I think to some degree I have a bit of a thicker skin on that than maybe some other people do because I just literally have to get pummeled by like a hundred kids every semester, twice a year mm. over and over again until apparently I die. <laughs> so, you know, that, that seems just, I guess, um, <laughs> for some past sins of mine. I don't know how it's just, dude. I don't know how it's just. No, I don't know. I, I'm assuming some past version of myself did some really nasty shit. <laughs> And that I'm just kind of slogging it out at this point. But um, I mean, not to not to play like armchair psychologist here with you, but the four months, five months of the absolute sprint to the end on something that you were taking on, you know, for the challenge, for the check, for the opportunity, for all of that. I, I have to imagine that at some point in there, you had to find something that was going to be the motivator for you to care about like really doing the job, not just getting to mm. the end and saying, I'm not ashamed to have my name on this, but to like, to care enough about it, to have the energy to do the extra hours, the extra speed. Oh, the absolutely. Speed absolutely. Oh yeah. I, I mean, know, so what, 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 what in the book ended up getting its hooks into you then to make that possible? Well, I mean, uh, I, I was, what I was going to say is fandom loves the book now. <laughs> that's what I was, oh, okay. that's a, that was my long preamble, but even, as with you, Tracy, like if I get one bad review out of twenty, I'm traumatized over the one bad review, and I oh, ignore yeah. the twenty good ones. Yeah. Which that's no human nature. As for the book, mm-hmm. yes, you you did the the good host thing and and directed the conversation to the actual book. No, I the, the here's there's there's a couple of things that made this me want to be proud of it. Um, aside from my from work ethic, and that is, I'm writing canon, man. Like this yeah. is the this is official now. It's and Aliens is an absolute classic. I love that film. I was kind of I didn't like the fate of all the the survivors in Alien Three. The only survivor we have is that you can credibly in canon that you can credibly bring back as Bishop because he was deactivated. And if he's deactivated, mm-hmm. well, logically he can be reactivated. Yeah. So, so one, I'm creating canon in a in a universe I really love, uh, and that is as we briefly mentioned right at the start, isn't, isn't a million miles away from the kind of cyberpunk I write. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I'm the first Australian to be the on the cover of no. an Aliens franchise. So I, I'm quite proud of that. I wanted to do, I want to do a good job from that perspective. And I get to introduce, see, the thing is, even though you're writing in their IP, mm-hmm. and yes, I had to write about Bishop, and yes, I had to write about his creator, Michael Bishop, I got, kind of got free reign. So I I introduced, there's now Australian character now, is now canon. There's a Vietnamese character, Xuan Nguyen, who's now canon in the universe. I get to I got to put in stuff that's consistent with the Aliens universe, but also within my own set of interests, which is essentially intergalactic imperialism, basically, which is aliens. If you think about the Aliens universe, we have these giant, and if you look into the law, it has these giant corporations and powerful transnational entities that are essentially trying to colonize space and in an, and are in opposition to each other. So there's three or four yeah. or five different imperial powers. It's and the it industrial also, end of cyberpunk just in space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of connections with cyberpunk, I think. I don't think it quite is, but I think that because the initial visionary for Alien and the guy who made Blade Runner is the same creator. I think his yeah. vision, in fact, I, I heard a interview with Ridley Scott where he said he imagined 
when the crew of the Nostromo came back to Earth after after their deep space mission, he imagined them going to the Blade Runner uh, Los Angeles in that film. Mm. So he, I think, aesthetically there were there's some good connections there, and, and, and more than that, there's some other aspects with synthetics and and so forth, and giant evil corporations, of course. So there, there's there's quite a few links. So I have had hardcore aliens fans read Bishop go on to my work and then say, oh, this is how I imagined Earth to be in the Aliens universe, not deliberate. That's actually really cool. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really cool. It's cool for me. It's really cool for the reader because they get this this gritty, dark, neon-drenched Earth where they can – it feels not – not beyond the realm of possibility that this is in the the same universe as aliens. Though, of course, there's no aliens in my there's no xenomorphs in my work. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, yeah. that was really cool. You know, it, it, so so the universe. I don't know. Um, it, it it's it's been tugging away at all the factors that ended up bringing you onto the functional nerds because the other things, of course, that I that I do in my life as a teacher is I. I get away with teaching a speculative fiction course and getting paid money for it. So that's, awesome. that's grand. Yeah, for real. And uh, this week in class, my students were reading Cyberpunk oh, and talking cool. about it, which actually was 1000% just a coincidence of the scheduling for my semester. And then when I was looking through my notes for you, I was like, well, hot damn, that, that sure turned out. And as I was sort of thinking about having a conversation with you, since you've been kind of marinating in the world of your creative vision for hard-boiled cyberpunk for for quite some time now. Mm. I was thinking about it in terms of, you know, William Gibson a long time ago, um, not even recently, like 20 odd years ago, kind of declared what he and Bruce Sterling always called the movement of, of uh, cyberpunk. He declared the movement dead. Mm. And it is clear that, that you've decided that dad was wrong. You know, the, <laughs> the movement's not dead or, or something new has sort of come birthed out of it. And I guess I'm really interested in from the perspective of someone writing in 2023, 2024, and on into the future, especially in a world where it seems as if the gap between the cyberpunk near futures that have been sort of described to us since the early 80s and where we live now is getting smaller and smaller all the time. For you, what's the what's the draw? Like, what what do you feel like cyberpunk has to offer for you and for your readers now creatively? That's yeah. like, yep, this is where I need to be. Yeah, I mean, it's cyberpunk is often declared dead, but it's yet ironically, it's in some ways the most relevant subgenre because we're living in a cyberpunk present. We live a lot of the things imagined in cyberpunk has come to pass, whether mm-hmm. it's surveillance capitalism, whether it's uh, deep fakes run by the Russian state in a psychological warfare operation, mm-hmm. whether it's staggering inequality, whether it's decline, the decline of the state, uh, the, the, the power of giant corporations, the way we are monitored and manipulated by a surveillance device that we carry around everywhere in our pockets willingly. Mm-hmm. There are so Cheerfully. many cyberpunk Every day I'm confronted with our cyberpunk present. But why is it? Why should we talk about it then? It's interesting. William Gibson also said, I, w- I was just listening to an interview with him the other day, and he said, cyberpunk is a retrofuturism. So it's how we imagined the future in the 80s. And then he said, mm-hmm. but it's a retrofuturism that came true. 
Which is which was an interesting take. I think for me, why why is cyberpunk relevant? Well, I think it's relevant because cyberpunk is about modernity, and so I think it's actually, if you want to think of it in a slightly different way, is science fiction noir. So it mm-hmm. runs through. If you look at the the history of hard boiled fiction, and then neo noir, and then tech noir, which is cyberpunk. What we're talking about is back then it was capitalism in the dark city. So if you look back at the hard-boiled fiction of Dashiell Hammond, I'm not going to do a history lesson. <laughs> but if, if I wouldn't mind brief, if you did, but sure. Yeah. Very briefly, he's he was talking about the alienation, the atomization of the dark city and the dark city in a way being a, a character on its own. And he was thinking about societies where that were fundamentally corrupt and he was – and where nothing could be changed. So you had, and so what he had is a hard-boiled hero who was a who was made cynical by this world, but would never bow to these forces. Couldn't change the world, unlike some science fiction and fiction would have you believe. These forces can't really be changed, but the the spark of individual resistance can always be there. So how is that relevant now? Well, I think we're in we're in late stage capitalism. Um, I think that that subject matters that are good for cyberpunk are staggering inequality, giant corporations, imperialism, mm-hmm. inf- it, technolo- technology used to manipulate and control and dehumanize mm-hmm. us. All these things are more relevant than ever. And as someone who lived in Southeast Asia for a decade, on and off, well, actually, pretty much fully for a decade. That's the cyberpunk setting, and it also feels like the future. And by, by that I mean you were in uh, – it's hard to explain, but you go to somewhere like Vietnam where I lived and it's, it's vibrant, overwhelming, um, frenetic city where it feels like if the – if, as some international relations theorists and historians and so forth say that this is the Chinese century, well, that's mm-hmm. that's right there on the doorstep of the of our future. Yeah, and it's a way. And so, when you live in that part of the world, you think about the coming century, and you think about what what would happen if China was the sole superpower. What would happen if America collapsed? What would the world look like? This is the cl- a classic what if in yeah. If things go on, the sort of yeah, classic structure if things, if things of things go on, and yeah. what's the what? What is a, a and I feel like su- uh, cyberpunk is a perfect subgenre to explore some of these questions, and certain and as an aside, is sexy as hell, and the aesthetics are gorgeous, and it is it's it's very much about the vibes, yeah. yeah, yeah, and you know, as a fan of Blade Runner, as a fan of Ghost in the Shell, which mm-hmm. is. I'm. I'm. Uh, it's a very. Uh, those were very influential movies on me, partly because mm-hmm. they are, especially Ghost in the Shell is. It's exciting and has many iconic action scenes, but it also for both of them they're quite existential and philosophical at the same. No, there's time. this really strong interiority to it. Mm. Like they're, they're these characters who have authentic anxiety about who they are and what they what they're for and where do they fit in. Um, mm. And is is their justice and what they're doing. And and those are fundamentally very capital L literary kind of contemplations and questions. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think you can play a double game with cyberpunk, Tracy. I think you can, what I strive for, uh, I don't know if I ever reach it, but if what I strive for is, so on the one hand you have 
something that's thrilling and mind-bending and makes you want to turn the page and maybe every now and again makes you go, whoa, that's cool, you know, on the one hand. But then you get to the end of the book and you put it down and the double game is the reader The reader thinks. The mm. reader's like, oh, damn it. I was, I, was, I was propelled through that book, but now I'm thinking. Now I'm thinking about this culture. Now I'm thinking about this history. Now I'm thinking about this theme. And I think the very best side, I think very, I think it's very, any genre can do this, but I think cyberpunk, it's very good at playing a double game if you nail it on these deeper philosophical questions, but also something that is, entertaining is not the word, but I use the word thrilling. That can be thrilling to be a, to be um, immersed in. Yeah, and I think to some extent it, um, you know, you talk about it as a double game. It's, al- it's almost a little bit of a, a sleight of hand trick of sorts where the reader thinks that they that they've sort of plugged into this narrative because it's all kind of like eyeball kicks of of kinetic energy and aesthetics and dramatic tensions and um you know all of that sort of stuff and people with wired reflexes and implants and stuff like that and then you realize once you set the book aside as you were describing that the thing that gets under your skin isn't the cybernetics it's it's the ideas it's the kind mm. of creeping sense of of this being strikingly near to a reality we're already in yeah yeah which is probably why you know I was I mean I was attracted to it because I loved it anyway but also because mm. um, as I alluded to I, I was a I lived in Southeast Asia for a decade because I was an aid worker. Yeah. So running poverty alleviation programs in some of the poorest areas on earth. And so what William Gibson also, one of his famous sayings is, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. Mm. And so you get, I very much see, and, and of course, high-tech low life. And when you work in aid and you work in that realm, you do see high-tech low life all the time. You see crushing poverty mm-hmm. alongside satellite dishes and cell and and mobile phones and cell phones and you see the future as it is in a place in the west or in the big metropolises of parts of asia but then you see those who in some ways have been left behind so it's a it it, it it kind of if you could take all my personal interests and mush them together it would probably be cyberpunk <laughs> so you're in the right business how many of us well, have to say that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are we in the right? We've all got day jobs, Tracy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've got one foot in the right business in any case. Yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah. true. You know, I was thinking about it also in terms of, I don't know, I get I get a little bit discomforted at the idea that science fiction's, um, that science fiction is like purpose driven in the sense of like it is it is meant to teach us a thing or do this thing or do mm. whatever. And and that's partly just because I, I think the part of me that is always and forever a teacher is like, no, sometimes books are just books, man. You just mm. got to do the book thing. But I do think a lot about that meme that you've probably seen circulated around the internet tons. And it, it took up a lot of viral energy all over again after Elon Musk was you know talking Neuralink mm. again recently, that whole Torment Nexus meme, yes. the one that runs... Yeah, for the, for those who don't know what I'm referring to here, it's uh, Alex Blackman is usually credited with it. It's like a screenshot of a tweet from a couple years back that he did back when X was still Twitter. It says, "Sci-fi author in my book, I invented the torment nexus as a cautionary tale." 
tech company. At long last, we have created the Torment Nexus from the classic sci-fi novel, Don't Create the Torment Nexus. <laughs> and, you know, I, I get my, my preamble there that I had a moment ago is sort of like I, I get a little bit squicky at the idea of like the purpose of science fiction is to warn us of things or predict things or, you know, to kind of try and chunk it into these like roles. But I do think that that in a sense, cyberpunk has something to offer us as a kind of warning. Like it, it's, mm. it's not exactly a Luddite version of telling the, the tales of the future, but it is on the, at the same time as it's very facile with imagining what technology can do, it's highly skeptical of it. Yeah, yeah, no, and I'm with you. I'm not for, I think, how can I put this? I don't go into a book saying, this is the message. I go in because it's a great story to write. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and I think I'm. I do. Of course, we read to escape. But I, I, I you, your last guest that you've that I that certainly it's on your list. I don't know if he was your. You might have had another one in between. Was I think he's pronounced Wale? Is that how you pronounce his name? A Wale? Yeah, um, Dalabi Wale Dalabi. Yeah. Um. He's so he was talking about yeah. he reads to have his mind blown. I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. He reads mm-hmm. to see new points of view and, and have a new experience and. And and to to see things he's never seen before and feel things. I'm the same. That's yeah. my kind of my. That's the juice, you know. When I'm when I when I'm, I always want to. I always want to be blown away, and I always want to. And so there's different ways to do that. So I yeah, kind of yeah. want to give that to the reader, but that's not being didactic, and that's like this is the message. For me, I think one of the important things about what literature can do is create a complex world with complex and nuanced characters. And so, yes, of course, there's themes, but it's not beating you over the head themes. It's, yeah. it's, and that's, I suppose, why I quite like another reason thing about cyberpunk is we have these characters that are almost too human. They're so fundamentally flawed in different ways and they're not always likable, but they are, hopefully explicable and understandable and we understand yeah. what they're doing and, and and where they're going. I went off on a tangent, but you had a different Well one of one of the things that I was thinking about since we're since we're kind of talking about what, what you want to offer the readers and and what you you know you want to give these characters who are uh, you know they, they feel textured they feel they feel three-dimensional to us that you've got a lot to offer readers coming up here in 2024 in june and september as well so i want to make sure that we make some space since we've we've done good service by aliens over here i want to make sure that we make space to talk about ghost and neon god and the Asher Man because although you you are the first to own on your website that it, it gives the illusion of insane looking productivity it's still a hell of a lot of work no, it's a huge amount of work. Yeah. So, for your listeners, what Trace is referring to is is the fact that I, I wrote an article on my website saying um, mm. I look productive, but actually, the Eshaman I began in 2014, and Ghost of the Neon God I began in 2017. Mm-hmm. They just happened to come together at the same. They just happened to be sold at the same time, and for me, in a in the uh, in the writer sense, to to really nail them down. At around the weird feast and famine thing that publishing does. Yeah, it does. It does, and it's it's amazing when you're on the inside. How uh, this is a separate discussion, but it's amazing when you're on the inside. Just how 
old school and opaque and slow it is. My God. <laughs> yeah. Although they did, I tell you what, they did rush. You can see how fast they can work with an IP novel because they bloody rushed aliens through. <laughs> oh, yeah, that. yeah. I've got a fire under them there. Yeah, I was, I'd finished that and it was in hardback within a year, which was, was I guess that's what the, it feels like to be a big-time writer. But anyway, yes, no, I've got <laughs> I've got two books. I've got a novella and a novel coming out. Uh, the, the, in June is is a is the novella called Ghost of the Neon God and then uh, The Escher Man is in September. They are all set, set in the world of 36 Streets, which is my debut. So I've created a – I spent an enormous amount of time <laughs> creating a world. And, in fact, I started with a short story collection with help, which helped me understand how the world worked. Mm-hmm. And so once you've built your world, I, I don't know about you, but you want to – you don't want to just like, go on to the next Get thing. the most you can out of it. Like that was yeah. a lot of work. I'm not just going to walk away from that. Yeah, so if someone's read, if, if for my, I have for my readers who've read my earlier work, they get to see more of that universe. That's fantastic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And The Escher Man takes place five years after my debut, 36 Streets, but I consider it standalone. That's set in Macau. Mm-hmm. But the next one goes to the Neon God set in Australia. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I'm, I'm excited about that because, all my other work's not set here. <laughs> All my other work's set in uh, part, different parts of Southeast Asia or space. So it's good to finally have Australia as a setting for yeah. one of my books and um, and to use the terrible beauty of our landscape as part of as part of the backdrop. Yeah. To use obviously cities that I lived in and that I've loved. It's great to be able to sort of bring the work home in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was living in Vietnam when I wrote my debut, and my debut was set in Vietnam. So, mm. so obviously, that was it was a huge influence on me. But setting has always been—I always assumed Tracy that setting was a massive influence on every single author. But I listen to author interviews all the time. I'm always curious mm-hmm. about the process of of other writers, and I think I'm probably impacted by setting more than the average writer. It's really I can't escape it. Yeah. Uh, whereas I see other writers seem to be. I'm mean, of course you're always influenced by your culture. Of course you are in in ways that um um obvious and in ways that are unconscious. But I think just in terms of a physical location, it's where I'm living is is extremely important to me and has a is quite influences quite heavily in my work. What about you? I mean, oh yeah, absolutely. Like I, I get a little bit obsessive about setting, and I think as a as a writer, it it may be one of the things that people who who read my work or who work with me in the process of of polishing my work can get a little bit like, okay, can we can we calm down on the setting details now? Like we don't need that. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, you do. So you know, for me, often the process of writing something and sort of understanding it from for me, making it feel lived in, making it feel authentic starts with almost like overselling the setting. And then there's this process of sort of figuring out how much can mm. I kind of pull back and yeah, kind of yeah, put yeah. back behind the curtain and just, you know, if it's assumed for me, then it's enough for me to make decisions that are going to create a kind of narrative consistency or tonal consistency mm. that where maybe I don't need to advertise all of this stuff, but the fact that some earlier draft of it had it in there is enough to sort of, it got the bug out of me, and I, I'm I'm able to kind of yeah, that, and that's that's an interesting. Yeah. It's almost a world building thing where sometimes yeah. you build the world, and then you figure, and then you put it on the page, and then you figure out how to take it all away and do world building. 
yeah. with just a sentence or a reference or a single yeah. throwaway line, and it and the it just sets a fire in the in the mm-hmm. imagination of the reader, and suddenly they have a clearer vision of yeah. what the yeah. world is like, whether it's just a reference to a piece of technology or mm-hmm. to an event, and it's just yeah. almost in the background, but but it, yet it it fills out the reader's imagination yeah. at the same time. I love that. I love it when you get it right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a great feeling, especially when when some reader has glommed onto something that is, like you mentioned, the sort of almost like a throwaway line or, or sort of something that's been placed there that's meant to kind of give dimension or add texture. And and then you have a chance to talk to a reader later and they're like, what, what's the deal with that war that you mentioned? And some part of you is like, I don't actually know everything about that war. <laughs> just kind of figured there'd be a war. And so then you, you kind of it's a bit of a tightrope walk, right? We need to understand it to a certain extent ourselves in order to make yes. it, in order to in order to kind of sell it. It's it's you know the prestige of the illusion, right? And then there's also just the business of like we can't. It, there may not be value in us understanding it too closely because we can't mm. afford to be too hidebound in our original plans. You go ahead, you write some more stuff, you realize, oh wait, this thing that I had envisioned as part of the background of my world is kind of broken. So I guess that's not a thing anymore now. It's yeah. a lot of it's a tug of war with yourself, really. Yeah, no, I mean, I do. I go on. The, I err on the side of huge amounts of detail, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and knowing it completely, and uh, and mm-hmm. often even sometimes writing a short story. But I think a good mm-hmm. example is um, in Star Wars, where Luke says, uh, "You fought in the Clone Wars," and then you think to yourself. Oh my! My imagination as a child was like, "What are the Clone Wars? Whoa, that's are they fighting then, against clones? Are they fighting?" Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. And then you, and then you just kind of have theories with your friends, and then you see the Clone Wars, and you're like, "Yeah." <laughs> you're like, "Oh, that's a bit of a letdown." Yeah, no, that was the Clone Wars. Uh, it's better when I didn't know, but it depends. Yeah. It depends on the execution, of course. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think is an important lesson for especially folks in genre. And I mean, going circling back to the whole IP thing, IP can make can make a certain type of of, of creative working group, especially of a corporate type, very hungry, you know, and mm. they, they they'll see an idea and they're like, yes, we can we will make more of this. We will, we will Money. take an entire spin off. Right. <laughs> make it rain. <laughs> and yeah, sometimes they have to learn those hard lessons like like we Oh, there's, there's a very high midichlorine count. To be like, oh, damned if we ever heard about that. I guess we did very briefly in Mandalorian. There was there was a mention. I think it was like season end of season. What a one, stupid way to to break oh, my a, God. a mythical concept. I know, right? And, It'd be like, oh, oh no, he's, so many imaginations out there. His, his, oh, his, his Jesus, his Jesus mitochondria are very big. You know, he's got. <laughs> yeah, it's just like what? What his what is what now? Like. And so, yeah. yeah, you've never seen a you've never seen a property back farther away, or faster mm. away from a thing. Like they they'd set it on fire, and it's that that is just as well. Mm. Uh, well, on the on the subject of things, maybe we do want to claim, like not things that we're going to run far and fast away from. Let's we should probably do picks of the week. Picks of the week. Tim, what has been bringing you joy lately? Ah. Uh. Uh, can I, I? I'm allowed to name a couple of things, aren't I? Oh yeah, just go wild. This is the two okay. of us. Uh, uh, the well, a book I really loved. Uh, it's my. Uh, it's certainly this year is my favorite of this year. 
although it's early in the year, admittedly. But I read uh, Winter's Bone, which is a which is a neo noir by um, Woodrow, mm. I think his name is, an American neo noir. Uh, there was a film out a decade ago or something with I think it was Michelle Lawrence, and it was her debut as an actress, hmm. as an actor. Um, anyway, if it is superb, the the prose in it is superb. Yeah. From a perspective of a reader or a, or an author, I'm I'm like wow, this guy he can write, he can really write a sentence, and it's a really compelling story about um, a very poor community in the US. I think it's in the Ozarks. That's oh that's, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's there, and it's just I thought that was excellent. Um, but in turn, mm-hmm. but on the spec fic side or or on the on the uh, genre side, I I don't. I must confess, I don't watch heaps of TV streaming movie these days. But I, what was I watching recently? Oh, I'm watching uh, True True Detective at the moment. Oh, good, yeah. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Probably not. I don't know. Is that speculative fiction though? I don't know. It delves. It, 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 know, it, it teases. Who cares? Yeah. It's, it teases with cosmic horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've also been watching Blue Eyed Samurai on Netflix. Oh yeah, that was that was definitely Patrick's great love of 2023 and I finally oh, okay. caught up to him and and ended up it I'm I'm bad at TV, which the listeners know. I've talked about many times just cuz I I'm always so busy with other things that it's, it's yeah, not that it's I nice. dislike TV. I love I love TV. TV's great. It just I never it's not one of those things I've really sequestered a lot of time in my life for, but I did watch Blue-Eyed Samurai and that was um such a huge payoff. And I can't believe I got through the whole thing until oh. Uh, I, I, I'm up to, I've got two episodes, so don't spoil. <laughs> I won't spoil anything for you, but I will say that when when we got to the end, uh, my husband turned to me and he said, "Do you do you know who does the voice of of the villain?" And and I was like, "I I don't know. I, I don't know if I recognize him for sure." And he told me, and I was like, "Get out of town!" And then I sort of listened back to a couple of the episodes, and I was like, "Hot damn." That is him. Like that is it was. Kenneth? It's Kenneth Branagh, right? It's Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, it doesn't sound so, like him, does it? It, it? it just like he's really leaning. He's from Belfast originally, and so I think he's just really leaning into uh, the Irish in a way that that the sort of Shakespearean milieu and 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 all of that hasn't really privileged. No, I'm with you, Tracy. Way. I um, I, I've got writing. I've got. Mm-hmm. I, I work in the disability sector. Mm, yeah. Well, I've got two young children, and I have, to, and I can, and I love reading. But I also consider reading part of my job as a writer. Right. So yeah. there's, and so my night times set aside for reading. So yeah. I actually had something had to give, and this is I came to this decision a couple of years ago now. But what had to give was movies and streaming, mm-hmm. and so I'm kind of I, if if there's people are all talking about something. Mm-hmm. And it's people are, and they, I, I, I sort of kind of trust their judgment. I, I might have a look, but I just ignore the hype train most of the time now mm-hmm. because I don't have the time. <laughs> and once, yeah, and one, one of the things I love is once you get into the reading habit, and it's something we had certainly for me, I had when I was younger, and that have been, and there's so many distractions and and demands on our time now. But once you set aside time, as I do every night, your brain wants it. It wants the book, wants the book in my yep. hand, and it yep. wants the next story. So I'm, I'm just really enjoying reading at the moment. 
Yeah. No, that's a good craving to nurse right there. Um, mm. Patrick and I have talked about this before. He uses audiobooks differently than I do because he works he works largely from home. Uh, and, you know, being a teacher, I, I work never at home. Well, that's mm. not true. I actually spend shit tons of time grading at home. But yeah, there's I, I have quite a commute to get where I teach. And so for me, it's audiobooks all the time because otherwise mm. it's just sort of, you know, an hour each way of kind of dead time. Mm. Where I where I end up getting sucked into other things, and so it, it becomes a way of making sure that I that I keep having a relationship with books, and that kind of takes me to my pick of the week. So this is actually an audio. It's not an audio book. It is actually part of the great courses. It is a sequence of lectures, and you can get it by way of Audible. And I'm a great fan of it. It's it runs just shy of four hours in total, and it's split up into different segments, 10 lectures. It's called The Science of Sci-Fi, uh, From Warp Speed to Interstellar Travel. And oh, I'm cool. on probably my fourth or fifth listen through it. It's by this absolutely magnetic, funny, interesting professor of, of physics uh, named Erin McDonald. And she does a really wonderful job because one of the things that she does as a sort of side hustle, um, we're all side hustles these days, it seems like, Mm. is she does consulting work with uh, TV production studios and movie production studios when they are trying to do science fictional stuff and they want to have some idea if they're in the ballpark of bullshit or possibility. And so she does consultations with you know, uh, showrunners and scriptwriters and things like that. And so based on her knowledge of that kind of behind the scenes world and her actual practical knowledge of, of physics, she does this really fun sequence of lectures that covers everything from, well, like the title says, from warp speed to interstellar travel and time travel and relativity and all sorts of fun stuff. And she's always grounding it in really specific examples, whether it's from something kind of tongue in cheek like Galaxy Quest to something that's more familiar and kind of canonical, like things in Star Trek, for instance. Uh, she'll refer to Battlestar Galactica. She'll talk about uh, Mass Effect. You know, she'll she'll kind of frame things in terms of stuff that's part of the larger genre vocabulary, and always kind of keeps winding us back to. How does this actually work? If it doesn't work, in what ways is it related to ideas that do work? And so whether you are the sort of person who slept your way through high school science classes or really dug them or not, it's a really interesting take on what are the things that get us excited about and create these kind of like narrative possibilities in futurism? And to what extent are they grounded in things that you know, kind of are plausible or just interesting extrapolations of things that are plausible. So I always listen to it like every, every, um, every year, right before I go back into teaching my speculative fiction class. And so I'm on like my fourth or fifth listen through of it. I've been, it's, it's a great favorite of mine and well worth the time. And since it's all these little segmented, like half hour lectures, it's really easy to kind of jump into and pick up and put down. So highly recommend The Science of Sci-Fi uh, by Aaron cool. McDonald, if you're, especially if you're into audio approaches to, to narrative and learning stuff. I am um, just, just oh, uh, uh, you just reminded me, I had a conversation two days ago with a mathematician uh, and he's oh, wow. a pure mathematician at the Australian National University, a really interesting guy. Anyway, I, I was asking him about, I've been talking about cyberpunk and aliens for 50 minutes, but I am I'm working on a fantasy novel at the moment. Oh, cool. But um, I told him, I said to him, mate, I want to I wanna have maths in this fantasy realm, but 
all math treatises are banned, but I want to mm. have a character look at a mathematical textbook and I want her to implement it in a way that feels like magic, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, and I, won't, I don't want to give too much away because it's if this book ever comes out in five years, <laughs> is it right, yeah. probably yeah. not a spoiler. Um, mm-hmm. But he said, I can, but for a, I'll, I'll say that in a siege, he was saying you could use fluid dynamics in a siege to direct the attackers. I'm like, whoa. And then he's like, and then I was saying how in Eastern mathematics they used to not have formula, they had prose. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he explained it all to me and he goes, I could express the formula for fluid dynamics in a haiku. And I'm like, hmm. what? What? So Tell me more. Yeah, so I've got <laughs> – so it's like – and this is someone who did not do well at mathematics in high school, but he can, he did a, it ended up being a poem that mm-hmm. expresses the formula of fluid dynamics and that this person can use to control the movements of a cra- of a large crowd in a siege. And I'm like, this is for me, that's magic. Yeah. yeah. Now it's magic. Um, but for yeah. in a fantasy setting that would appear like magic. So it's kind of, so she figures out fluid dynamics through a prose poem and some examples. I'm like, wow, what a cool idea. Anyway, I only yeah. thought of that because you were talking about the science of things. And so I've been I did a, I did this discussion with this great mathematician about um, about practical applications for old mathematical formula. Yeah. That is super cool. I hope you I hope you do end up digging into that idea. I would love I'm to doing see where it. that goes. Yeah. All right, good. Good. Then, then it's it's a booking. Five years from now, it's uh, <laughs> we'll have you on to talk about the as yet unnamed fluid dynamics mathematical magic works. <laughs> <laughs> it's been really great talking to you, Tim. So, okay, we got TR Napper. We have this and so many other books out. Where can people find you and all of your cool stuff, both in the interwebs and in and in real life? Oh, uh, um, I my. <laughs> My website is Nappertime. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love that. Uh, Nappertime.com. Um, but I'm TR Napper on Instagram. I'm pretty sure I'm TR Napper on Facebook. Bloody blue sky. I'm, I, they make us go everywhere, Tracy. <laughs> it's it's getting it's getting bad. It's really bad. <laughs> I'm TR Napper on blue sky, but on Twitter, yeah, I'm the Escher man. Mm. Is my handle there? I think that's everything you need to know yeah well you can find yeah. you lots of sorts of ways then hmm. well fantastic so if you're if if folks are keen to check out uh the works of tr napper there are several books out in the pre-existing cyberpunk universe of of his imagination and of course there's aliens bishop which came just out just at the end of 2023 hmm. and more to come in in 2024 with ghost of the neon god and the asher man so Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Us, like that it, symbiotic organism of, of Patrick Tracy. <laughs> well, no, thank you for the invitation. It's been good to talk to you. Welcome, dear listeners, to the year 2024. Will it be a better year than its predecessor? Only time will tell. My new dual monitor mount thingy for my desk toppled over and sent my coffee cup over the edge, splashing coffee all over my desk, my clothes, the carpeted floor beneath my feet. 
Looking a lot like 2023 there, 2024. Hey, have you ever heard of Beyond the Trope? They've got a podcast just like we do, only they have announced it will be ending on their 10th anniversary, which makes me sad. But Giles and Michelle have planned to go out with a bang-up list of guests you won't want to miss. So go check them out, Beyond the Trope. Also, I win. Also, also, for us, don't forget to share this episode with your own friends. And if you haven't already done so, check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash functional nerds. If you like what we do, feel free to toss us a couple of bucks a month to help pay the bills. Also, 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 like us or give us a star or a review on your preferred podcast platform wherever you're grabbing episodes from or streaming. It helps, and we appreciate it. Now, did you know that in the 1960s, the CIA tried using cats to gather intel on the Kremlin and Soviet embassies? They equipped the cats with battery-operated microphones and antenna to record data. I wonder how that turned out. Mr. Carpiers. You got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions. And then oh squirrel. Oh for God's sake. Patrick Louise. <laughs> Hello, Patrick. It is I Clayface. Okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, hey, I really love what you do, I'm like, I'm sorry, do you know who I, like, I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.